0: All right. Republican candidates have now debated how to defend America from terrorism and illegal immigration. The Democrat frontrunner has explained how she plans to extend the reach of socialism and executive power over American freedom. Reporters and pundits have checked the facts and discussed the issues. It's time for the American family to sit down around the dinner table and discuss the fact that Star Wars opens this week. Trigger warning. I'm Andrew Claven and this is The Andrew Claven Show. And that's really what everybody's talking about, right? <laughs> I mean, nobody, nobody cares. You know, this is the thing. The, the theme of this week has been this Mark Twain quote that was... Uh, at, featured on that uh, movie about Wall Street. It ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. That's what we've been talking about, all this stuff that we know for sure. And boy, oh boy, the reaction to that debate, it was perfect. I mean, first of all, everyone now knows that Donald Trump is going to win. My friend Roger Simon at uh, PJ Media was writing this kind of I couldn't tell whether he was saying it or he was making fun of all the press people saying basically drop the mic, it's over, Donald Trump is one. And you know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of that time that Howard Dean was elected president.
1: We're going to South Carolina and Oklahoma and Arizona and North Dakota and New Mexico. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Michigan. Michigan. all
0: right. All right. Whoever made that, I'm really glad you did, but you're wasting your life, you know okay. <laughs> <Good> job. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, I remember when that when Dean was he was leaving, I, it must have been right up to Iowa. I think he was way in the lead. And it was the same as with Trump. The press had him elected. And I saw a cartoon, a political cartoon in one of the newspapers. It was a kind of Mr. and Mrs. America shopping at the mall and they're walking by, without looking, they're walking by a newsstand, and in the newsstand is a newspaper with the headline, Dean to be Elected President, and the husband is saying to the wife, you know, it's almost going to be time for us to start paying attention to the election. <laughs> that's, what, that is what's happening. that's what's happening now. You know, I, I've been saying that I think Rubio is gonna win. Look, I don't know. I don't know who's gonna win. It's, it's like football, you know, every week, they tell you who's gonna win the football games and they're 30% right, and then they do it again the next week without e- ever acknowledging that they're wrong. So I'm acknowledging right up front, I may be wrong, I think it's gonna be Rubio. I think he is the one guy who's got the the support from the moderates and the conservatives that, that you need to win a Republican nomination because, you know, there's all this mythology about, oh, it's us against the establishment. Look, I'm, I'm a right winger, I'm really a conservative. And they keep saying, oh, the evil establishment keeps throwing Mitt Romney at us and forcing John McCain. They didn't force John McCain and Mitt Romney on us. The party is mostly center-right. It's mostly very moderate. Not, Not moderate. It's moderate conservative. That is who most of the people in the party are. And they vote for these guys. And before you get to the Iowa, nobody is paying attention. We are so involved in it and so up close to it. We think everybody is talking about it. And sure, Trump has caused a lot of news and more people are watching the debates, but people don't vote the way you think they do. I mean, they, they listen and they say, yeah, I like that Donald Trump. And then their wife says to them, are you kidding me? That guy, you know, and then you know, their mother slaps them on the head, you're not voting for Donald. Okay, I won't vote for Donald. You know, it's like it's like people make decisions really the moment before. I could be wrong. I think Trump has about a 15% chance that he, he'll make it. You know, I really do. I don't think Cruz is going anywhere. I, I love Cruz. I said yesterday I've done some work for him. I, I just think that Rubio is that guy who who hits that sweet spot. And he's conservative enough, you know. I mean, I think... One of the things, you know, Louis C.K. has a really funny routine. I can't play it because his language is so blue, but he has a really funny routine about how we react to each other when we're driving and how we overreact to anything. And a guy edges you out just a little bit out of your lane, and you're like, I hope you die. I, you, and, you know? and, and Louis C.K. says, really? You hope he dies? You know, he edged you out of your lane a little bit. And, and politics is exactly the same way. I mean, listen to the way people are talking about this Paul Ryan budget, which is really, Boehner's budget that he has to pay. he has no way to, to change that at this point. And it's like, that Benedict Arnold says the country is over, you know, it's like things really, you know, I, I'm a committed conservative, I truly am, but really bad things are happening to real people all around the world and in this country, we've got a terrible president, we've got a terrible Democrat candidate, Paul Ryan, <laughs> he's not that bad, you know, it's like, he'll be fine, and Rubio will be fine, and I, I really think he has a chance, I know he has a chance to win, because Obama's complimenting him, Obama has the White House saying, we like Rubio, you know, that, that means they're scared stiff of him, he's the only one, because he knows we react, I if Obama likes him, I pay them he got to be, anyway, that's, you know, that, this this thing, these things we know a lot about, we know are true, that just aren't true, is what I'm talking about, which brings me to what I want to talk about today, which is this TV show Fargo, and i I'm going to be very careful, as careful as I can be, to make this spoiler-free. I mean, I will talk about a couple of things that happen in the show, but I'll try not to give anything anything big away. I, I, there will be a slight spoiler of the old movie, Fargo, 1996. I have a scene I want to play that comes from close to the end of that. <clears throat> but it's a classic. it's a classic scene. You've almost surely seen this scene before if you care about movies at all. Now, among the things that we think we know, that just ain't so, but things we think we know, is that Hollywood is left-wing utterly and the movies are destroying our culture. We think we know this for sure, that Hollywood is is left-wing and the movies are destroying the culture. Now, just because we think something that isn't true doesn't mean the opposite is true. Hollywood is left-wing. But this sense of Hollywood is destroying the culture has been with us since Hollywood began. This was true back in the silent era the th- back then a lot of people don't know this but i think it was in 1915 the supreme court had a very important decision where it decided essentially that movies were not protected by the first amendment and most people don't like know this that that decision was in place until 1952 so the things that the movie moguls were most frightened of is they were frightened of the church ladies causing the you know protesting loud enough to cause the government to censor them and the funny thing was was that the church ladies in those days, I call them church ladies, we'll call them social conservatives. That's what they were. They were social conservatives, mostly connected to religious organizations. And they were very vociferous, very loud, and they had a lot of power. They could organize boycotts, they could shame people in the press. The, the general atmosphere of America was more accepting of their point of view than it is today. Today, that the church lady is kind of the anomaly, kind of the outsider, but then they were thought to be the center. But they never represented the audience. The reason they were the movie business was—I mean, think it through for a minute. The reason they were afraid of getting censored is because people wanted to see sex and violence on the screen. That's why you know people were showing up, and and things would happen. You know, there'd be rape cases and, and scandals, and the church ladies would take to the streets, and the movie moguls would be terrified because the audience didn't care. The audience was p- filing into the movies, and and that remains true today. I mean, they they they're afraid. I mean, this is why the Hayes office started. They had the Hayes office, which is kind of wrongly named because Hayes didn't want to censor the movies at all, but they had the Hayes office, which had all those rules about, you know, you can't show a married couple sleeping together and all that stuff. They did that to stave off the government from censoring them. You know, they didn't want the government to censor them, so they said, all right, we'll censor ourselves, and that kept the church ladies at bay, okay? So today we have the same kind of thing going on where conservatives, especially social conservatives, look around and they say oh my god you know there's all this filth and sex and violence in the movies and it's ruining our culture it's destroying our children and Back in the day, back in the old days, the movie moguls were businessmen, and they were in control, the studios were in control of the business, and they were, a lot of them were conservative Republicans, the guys who made the movie business, the movie business, who created the movie business. A lot of them were Jews. They had been in other countries. They loved this country. I mean, they knew, they knew that this was paradise as far as they were concerned, and all they wanted was to be included. They wanted to make movies that basically said everybody's included in being an American, including us Jews. But other than that, they supported, you know, American values. I mean, and that's why those movies, even if they had sex and violence in them, always had a sort of underlying sense that America was a good place and, our, and morality was a good thing and all this stuff. Now that's no longer true. That's been completely overturned by the death of the studio system and the fact that most corporations now are left-wing. People don't know that, but most corporations are left-wing. Most of Hollywood is left-wing, but... But when you go to the movies, you don't, you're you not seeing what you think you're seeing. If you go to the most successful movies, we already talked about just, a, a, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, we talked about Trainwreck and, and Juno and Knocked Up, these sex comedies that are deeply, deeply conservative in their uh, sexual mores. You know, very conservative. Chad Abatow, you know, he's been... He's been accused of it. He doesn't even know he's making conservative movies, but he is. And these are, you know, these are films with deep conservative messages. And you see terrific movies like The Dark Knight, which is an openly conservative film. Uh, uh, The Lord of the Rings trilogy, which of course was written by a devout Christian and was a very conservative guy. And uh, Toy Story 3, all of these things have deep conservative values embedded in them so certain is the left of owning hollywood that when you point out these conservative values they go nuts they they don't even they can't see them they just assume they're not there and this is part of what I'm going to say about Fargo, they just assume they're not seeing conservative values. When I wrote about the Dark Knight trilogy being in support of George W. Bush, they went nuts. They, I mean, I just, I I can't tell you the, the rain of ridicule and insult and emails at one point coming in every couple of seconds so that my wife was looking over my shoulder and watching, what the hell is going on, you know, and just telling me how wrong I was. Now everybody knows I'm right. Now everybody knows it. They, you know, even the left says, oh yeah, that's true. Toy Story 3, I wrote an article for the LA Times pointing out Toy Story 3 may be one of the most anti-statist films ever made. It's about the toys going to what you think is a wonderful place, where they're daycare center, where they're just going to take yeah. care of you, right? And they walk in and there's a rainbow on the door. And the guy says, oh, it must be a good place. There's a rainbow on the door. And of course, it's the center of all evil. And so I wrote this piece for the LA Times saying, look, this is an anti-statist film. And the director went on Twitter and said, keep your lousy politics off my film. You know, he didn't know. He didn't know what he was doing. He just assumed that it's a movie. It must be left wing, you know, and the same same thing with 300, which is virtually conservative porn. I mean, if you're a conservative, you watch it going like, "Ah, I love this movie. I don't know what it is. But that was made by Zack Snyder. He had no idea what he was making. I mean, the guy who does the cartoon, who did the graphic novel, uh, Miller, Frank Miller, he knows he's a conservative. He's a libertarian conservative. But, but the director didn't know because they just assume it. So often what you see, here, here's the the general rule, okay? Fantasy films speak conservative truths. Truth-based films speak leftist fantasies. Okay, that's the general rule. And the reason is a lot of the people making these movies have these values, our values, conservative values, but they're Democrats. and. Remember, the thing about—I was a Democrat. I know this for a fact. The thing about Democrats is Democrats don't think Democrats are right. They think Republicans are evil. Very big difference, okay? Democrats know that there's a lot of problems. You know, I'm not talking about the far left, who are the vociferous ones, the loud ones. I'm talking about the rank and file. Most of them, a lot of them, share our values— but they think Republicans are evil. They're evil religious people who are going to come and take my freedom away. They say on their way to church, you know, they, that they live the lives that Republicans think people should live, but they're afraid that we're pinched evil people who are going to take their freedoms away. So what you see in films again and again when they make a truth-based film or a historical-based film like Truth uh, about Dan Rather, Fair Game about Val- Valerie Plame, uh, all, every movie about the uh, war on terror except for American Sniper, Suddenly, they're all Democrats. They all have these Democrat values, so they they sell conservative values, but they have Democrat politics, and that's what you see at the movies. That is so uh, unnerving sometimes. And what I and any time a conservative tries to make a an historical based film, unless it's Clint Eastwood, who's so powerful, no one can touch him, and he's kind of a libertarian, so they can live with that. But when Cyrus Nawasta made that wonderful uh, TV. Uh, miniseries, The Path to 9-11, they have virtually, they have, it was only shown once despite the fact that it was huge, had huge ratings, and it has been banned. Disney, Iger at Disney, will not release that film to DVD. It You can't get it on DVD. It's the only film that's been made probably in the last, you know, 100 years that you cannot get on DVD is The Path to 9-11. When Joel Cerno made a truth-based film about the Kennedys. Uh, it was shoved off the history channel onto this other obscure cable channel because the Kennedys got to the people who wanted to put it on. They know they know that it's okay to sell conservative values as long as they sell Democrat history as long as and they think Democrat history is true. Okay, so that brings me to this show, Fargo. And one of the things I've also been talking about is the way coincidences happen in our lives. And just as you're writing a book, you meet the person who has the information you need. So yesterday, I said I'm going to come on and talk about Fargo. And yesterday, I had a meeting, and I walk into MGM. And I don't know which studio was making Fargo. I wasn't paying attention. But it turns out I walk into MGM, and MGM has a really cool... Way, uh, lobby you walk in and it's very vast but there's a big shelf with all their Oscars because MGM has been around since virtually since the start of the uh, movie era and so they've won all these Oscars and there's just this huge shelf full of Oscars very impressive and beyond that is a big picture of Billy Bob Thornton who starred in the first season of Fargo and I thought oh this must be you know, the place where they make Fargo. And I went into this meeting. After the meeting was over, I turned to the MGM people and I said, were any of you involved in making Fargo? And of course the guy said, yeah, you know, I helped develop <laughs> Fargo. So I, I asked him, the thing about Fargo is Fargo is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. The season, season two, I just finished watching season two, the values in this film, uh, in this show, are amazingly conservative. But the politics really is democratic. It, and it's weird. So I wanted to know about the guy who made the th- the, the show. It's based on the Cone Brothers. But it's, uh, but it's made by a guy named Noah Hawley. And so I wanted to know of Noah Hawley, what his values were. And I started asking this guy, and he, he didn't know. He, you know. he kind of was – either he was being cagey or he just didn't know. When I went to look up Hawley, I couldn't find anything out except the fact that I noticed he was interviewed in a lot of Christian magazines. And that doesn't happen to you unless you're a Christian. He didn't mention his religion at all. But I just noticed, like, the Christian Post and Christianity Today had uh, interviews with Noah Hawley. So that's, that's all I know. So I'm not talking about his intentions, I'm not talking about the intentions of the script, I'm talking about what I saw on the screen. All right, so this is a spin-off of the 1996 film by the Cone brothers, and that was a, one of the greatest crime American crime films ever made. The Cone brothers are brilliant at making crime films. They're pretentious films I can't stand, but their crime films are absolute genius, and this is the best of them. And it starred Francis McDormand who won an Oscar for playing this cop, this pregnant cop, right? And the whole point of the movie, basically, is to juxtapose these people who start a crime for money and it just goes out, spins out of control and becomes a kill fest with this basic, simple Midwestern girl who just exudes American values. And in this famous scene, she confronts one of the villains about the body count and she just speaks truth to him. So play this one clip. So that was Mrs. Lundegaard on the floor in there. And I guess that was your accomplice in the wood chipper. And those three people in Brainerd. And for what? For a little bit of money. There's more to life than a little money, you know. Don't you know that? And here you are. And it's a beautiful day. one of my favorite scenes in movies it's so it's such a great piece of writing because what she's saying is so simple it's not like a profound truth it's a simple truth there's more to life than money didn't you know that? And of course he didn't know. And that's, and that's the electric conflict of that movie and why it's such a great movie. It's just the simple, stupid things that people forget when they go after their own you know, sinful ambitions. And so that's what Hawley has tried to capture on this show. And he, the show is not this movie, although the first season did feature uh, a pregnant cop just like her with a different name. It was very close. I can't remember what it was, played by this wonderful new actress, Alison Tolman, uh, who looks so much like a real person that I walked by her in the parking lot of Starbucks right down the street from here. I walked by her and I thought, wow, that Alison Coleman really did look like a real person because she looks just like that woman there. And then I went, oh, that is her, that is Alison <laughs> I forgot I was in LA, you know. <laughs> like, or even the real people are fake people. Uh, so, so anyway, the first season was this wonderful uh, crime story with Billy Bob Thornton as an assassin and all this stuff. And there's one scene, I'm not going to play it, I'm going to skip that uh, scene in the diner, There's one scene where Billy Bob Thornton confronts an old man who runs the diner who is the father of the heroine, okay? Season two takes that old man who was played by David Carradine and who is a really admirable stalwart, you know, he's an old guy but a macho, you know, manly old guy and just absolutely... Courageous and confronting Thornton, just you know, not not a not a blink, and they get him as a young man. The story takes place in 1979, and he turns into Patrick Wilson, who you've pro- if you ever watched kind of high-level horror films, he's an in, in, Insidious and The Conjuring, uh, really handsome, Dan kind of guy, looks a little bit like the young Paul Newman, and he so he now plays that sheriff, and he's the sheriff at the center of this thing, and let, let's play just a little bit of the trailer for season two because it tells you the theme of the show. whole world we're just out of balance used to know right from wrong moral center now
1: do yourself a favor lock the door
0: that's <laughs> to lock the doors right i mean this thing has a body count that's out of sight and the idea is it's 1979 and the country is about to spin out of control according to the thesis of this script and The things that have poisoned life in America, according to this, are all the things that Democrats hate. The Vietnam War, Watergate, and Ronald Reagan. I mean, Ronald Reagan makes an appearance in this, uh, played by that great, um, what's his name, Um, uh, Bruce Campbell, the guy from The Evil Dead. And yeah, (laughs) He's, he's terrific. And he plays Reagan. And there's a scene where Reagan bumps into the hero in a bathroom and they're both standing at the urinals and Reagan turns to the hero and starts telling him about some act of heroism that he performed and only in the middle of it does Reagan sort of reveal that this is something that happened in one of his movies and Reagan's kind of this doddering old fool who has confused his movies with real life and that's it's a little bit more complex than that because in the course of the show, one of his movies and real life sort of coincide. So you start to wonder maybe Reagan had a point and the movies and real life do coincide. But it's just it's it's an ill-informed picture of Reagan. Reagan was a very, very sharp guy who read a lot of very serious economists and philosophers. If you read his letters, I've read his book of letters. Really, really uh, thoughtful the guy whose philosophy had been honed by his business experience going around making speeches for GE, and he'd been governor of a state and all this stuff. And this idea that he was like, you know, bedtime for Bonzo, this fool who made stupid movies and now was a president, is a Democrat trope. Every Republican president to the Democrats is either stupid or evil, right? It's either Reagan or Nixon. Reagan's stupid, Nixon's evil. They fought Eisenhower, was stupid you know the guy, the guy who ran world war Two, you know like oh he was a dope you know because <laughs> so, he because he stuttered you know so um so that's the thing the democrats are the republicans are sort of the bad guys you know uh the why vietnam vietnam was a democrat war but has now been attributed to nixon and the idea that vietnam was all wrong is very questionable. I mean, that did stop the Chinese from imperialism. It stopped them cold. They thought, if these guys are crazy enough to spend all that blood and treasure in Vietnam, we're not going to go anywhere else because who knows what they'll do. They're out of their minds, okay? So, so you know, Vietnam had some very effective things. However, the world that is falling apart and that he shows as the center of all morality is the world of the basic American family with very, very strong men and very, very womanly women, okay? And I don't even know if he knows he was doing this. This is the most anti-feminist show I have ever seen. And the thing is, because the left is so sure of owning Hollywood, nobody has said a word about it. Nobody has said a word about it but the story and i'm i'm not going to spoil anything but this is pretty much like the first half of the first episode is basically you have this basic american couple she is a, a hairstylist and he's a butcher uh, and she's played by Kristen Dunst to put on a lot of weight for this i didn't even recognize her uh, but she's still always always beautiful but still just uh, a lot uh, heavier than she usually is and Jesse Plemons who is a really good uh, you know kind of featured actor plays the butcher And she is being seduced by a lesbian into joining a feminist self-enlightenment movement. And the lesbian is only doing it because she wants to sleep with her. (laughs) And so it's very corrupt. And Kirsten Dunst is slowly revealed to be kind of nuts. And she thinks the whole world is about her self-realization. And because of what she does, all of Minnesota and Dakota erupts into this gang war that just leaves... So many dead, I lost count. And it's all because she leaves home. She go, leaves the deal that she had with her husband, which was that they were going to start a family, and he was going to buy the butcher shop, and they were going to be Americans. They were going to re- rise up and have a family. She leaves that behind for this dream of self-realization that she is lured into by a very sinister lesbian character. And that starts the whole thing. And there is a scene where one of the bad guys tries to kill the butcher. And we'll show this scene, uh, the bad guy played by a great actor, Jeffrey Donovan, just a terrific uh, you know, guy who always plays like feature, little small featured parts, but he has a great role in this as a bad guy. He tries to kill the butcher, and he explains what the problem is and why this whole h- horrible thing is started.
1: Son, you got yourself a woman problem. How I know is they've been plaguing me my whole life. What's the joke? Can't live with them. Can't turn them into cat food. Personally, I don't see the value. All that talking and the mood swings. It's the, the, the lack of rational thinking. Which brother of your bitch has got that in spades. See, the male of the species has got the potential for greatness. Look at your kings of all Napoleon, Kublai Khan, Samson. Giants made of muscle and steel. But these women, even in those Bible movies, you see it, Delilah and uh, Sherazade. I want to tell you my own private belief here. I think Satan is a woman.
0: <laughs> All right, now, that, that, of course, is the bad guy speaking. And the way that women are treated in this show is is amazing. It's very, very. They are the most competent, the most powerful people in the show, and even Kirsten Dunst, who's completely out of her mind and does nothing but cause havoc, is still more competent than her husband. And still, you can see him in that. See him. See her in that clip sneaking up on the bad guy as the as the butcher is being hanged. And so, but but it is this idea of self-realization. Which listen, I. I live in Hollywood, folks. This town is filled with people who are self-realized and in rehab because they're so miserable. Obviously, self-realization is not the way to happiness or fulfillment. At the center of the show is this sheriff who is... He's the reason I got absolutely riveted to the show. He just is the most quietly macho guy. He walks into scenes where he is surrounded by gangsters and never flinches. You know, He is there to enforce the law and... With him at the moral center of the show is his wife, who is ailing. She's, she's got cancer. And he, the, Noah Hawley, the writer, shows her to be, that she would be as good a cop as he is. She frequently says things to him that unlock the case for him. She's, she's really smart. She's really sharp. She's really on top of it. But she's raising her child, who will go on to become the sheriff in the later, in the first season. Okay, And this woman is... Everything, you know, even though she's ailing, she is brave, she is tough, and she is centered on this house and home. Toward the end, there are two speeches in this show when everything is blown to bits and Kirsten Dunst's character has just caused havoc across the Midwest. The sheriff says, says you know, we, we men take care of women and children. We call it our responsibility, but it's really our privilege. And then, and then there's a scene I could not believe, and I'm, I'm sure the left just didn't see this. I, I'm sure they can't. It's invisible to them. There's a scene where the, his wife, who is, like I said, she is the moral center of the show. She is resting in bed because she's ill, and she's sitting with her babysitter, and the babysitter is this pretentious little teenager who's always reading intellectual books and spouting existential philosophy, right? And she's reading Camus, one of the French existentialists, and the little babysitter says to the wife and mother, you know, Camus says that once you know, now that you know that you're going to die, all of life is a joke. And what, in what sums up the theme of the show, the wife turns to her and says, listen, and I'm, I'm not quoting this, I'm saying it from memory. She says, listen, you have a job to do. You have a certain amount of time to do it. And when you stand before the Lord, if you tell him you didn't do it because life is a Frenchman's joke, that ain't going to cut it. I saw that and I thought, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I'm not I'm not speaking for Noah Hawley. I'm telling you what I saw on the show. Feminism is one of the things that we the good of feminism is one of these things that we know to be so that isn't true. I believe if if you drew a Venn diagram, a circle of individualism, where each of us does what he can and wants to do, and drew a circle of feminism, there would be a place where they intersect. And in that place, that place that is really individualism, that feminism somehow co-opts, that is, is right. Everybody should be able to do whatever they want, and not everybody is suited for everything. However, women are not that good at individualism. Women can't even get up and go to the bathroom by themselves. I mean, they all (laughs) get up together and leave the room. They get into, women get into these fights. Should women be mothers or should they go to work? You never see men getting into fights like that. Men don't, you know, men have virtually stopped getting married because they don't get anything out of it anymore. But they don't tell other people, other men, not to be married. They just go off and do it themselves. You know? <laughs> but but women have these movements of what women should be like, and that I think is what feminism is, and I think it's poisonous. You know. Not that long ago, there was a research paper, May not two thousand nine. Here's the, here's the uh, brief of the paper. By many objective measures, the lives of women in the United States have improved over the past 35 years, yet we show that measures of subjective well-being indicate that women's happiness has declined both absolutely and relative to men. It used to be that men were much less happy than women, and now men are happier than women, and that is feminism. And what's wrong with that statement that I just read, by many objective measures, the lives of women in the United States have improved, They think that because they're feminists. They think that feminism is so. That's what they know, that just isn't so. Because all female commentators are working women, news commentators, writers... They can't see what's right in front of their eyes. They talk about childhood obesity. It never occurs to anybody to say that children are obese because their mothers aren't home. They're eating because they are not. They don't feel loved. They talk about stagnant workers' wages. Nobody has ever said, just thought, just done the research. Maybe that's because all these women poured into the workforce, meaning that workers are easier to get, making it harder for women to leave the workforce and take care of their kids. The decline of civility. This makes people crazy when I say this, but, you know, manners, good manners, are based on men being judged. Gentle and kind to women. That's the center of good manners. That is the center of good manners. Once you get rid of that prerogative, all bets are off. Men are never nice to men. Women aren't that nice to women. Men and women are nice to each other, and those set the standards of behavior that infest, infect the entire society. And women are unhappier and men are unhappier. You know, the difference between old guys like me when we talk about women and young guys that I've noticed is that we all notice the same things about women. Women have certain traits that are funny and strange to men. Old guys talk about those traits with affection. We love women. They are, you know, not only value-added to our lives, they are the center of our lives. And the differences between men and women are things we look at and say... Isn't this great? Uh, you know, we roll our eyes. We're you know, it's a, it's always frustrating for the sexes to deal with each other. But young men are furious about it because they weren't allowed to talk about it. They weren't allowed to notice it. If they noticed it, they were shouted down. And so they're angry. You know, they say, "Well, women are really like this." And you go, "Like, yeah, you know, they are. But that's, it's kind of nice. You know, it makes the world a better place." Men are unhappy. Women are unhappy. You know, these things are unsayable because they're true. These things are unsayable because they're true. What what feminism has done, it has, has deval. It has degraded female values, the value of home, the value of children, the job of taking care of children and making a home, the job of turning your husband into a leader because because it's women who make men into men. If you tell men they don't have to do anything, they won't. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's women who make men men. It's wives who make husbands into men by giving them the leadership position in the house. These things are unsayable because they're true. If I come in here and say there's a unicorn in the bathroom, nobody says, you can't say that because they all know it's not true. If I say men need a leadership position in the home, women should be taking care of their children. Children suffer if they don't have mothers in the first five years of their lives. Mothers at home, if if I say these things, people go nuts. You know, you can't say that. Here is an example, one of my favorite examples. My uh, – Gavin McLeod, who is a – mcginnis sorry gavin mcginnis who is a uh, comic writer and a comedian and really funny guy on on the hannity show with Tamara holder this left-wing lawyer he goes after her about women's wages one of my favorite moments on the internet
2: there's different ways to look at the data but the big picture here is women do earn less in america because they choose to they would rather go to their daughter's piano recital than stay all night at work working on a a, you know proposal what so they end up earning less they're less ambitious and I think this is sort of God's way this is nature's way of saying women should be at home with the kids they're happier there I I hope that your viewers do not take you sir, seriously. There's a great book because you should read. It's called Why Men Earn More and it's all about women choosing to put family over work and that's why they earn less. Having a choice does not mean that you're less ambitious and your comments are absolutely deplorable. Sean, I would like less you, ambitious the work I would like the you to adjust it. So. You're, you're a father, housewives you have a daughter. If you were a real feminist, you would support housewives and see them as the heroes you and women who work wasting their time. You said that women are less ambitious. Women are you less ambitious. You you have also said, Work. that women are better suited in the home. Yes, You've also said that, uh, let's see, that women are emotional and women shouldn't run for public office. All of these things that just I never said absolutely. women shouldn't run for yes, public you office. Yes, you have. You've if said that If we're talking before. about 50% of the population, generally out of this 250 million people or, or 150 million people, most women are happier at home. They are pretending that they like working and they're not making money because they don't stay all night at the office. They don't go the extra mile. Why they don't I work all here? weekend. I'm You're making a mistake. Here? You would be much happier at home with a husband and children. Oh, boy. Oh. Oh I boy. mean I'm I'm literally oh. you just said you're single. Oh. You don't have a boyfriend. You what That's you're seller
0: Yeah, look, you're miserable. You would be so much happier
2: with kids around you tonight.
0: <laughs> and I, I love my favorite part of this is where she says, You said women are emotional. I'm shaking. <laughs> it's... Yeah. You can't say it because it's true. That's why. The value of feminism, like the essential rightness of Democrats, is one of the things that the left knows for sure that just ain't so. And Mark Twain is right. It ain't the things you don't know that'll get you. It's the things you do know for sure that just ain't so. All right. I've gone long, but it was too much fun to stop. Uh, It's time for Christmas stuff I like. Uh, since we're talking about women, let's end with Ave Maria. This is by Fritz Biebel. Uh, it's, he's a one-hit wonder. This is the only uh, great song he ever wrote. Franz Biebel, I'm sorry. The only uh, great song he ever wrote, but it is insanely beautiful. This is a really cool YouTube video of where they took singers from around the world and taped them together, got, blended them together. It's beautiful stuff. Christmas next week. Hey. Yeah, it came upon us quickly. I'm Andrew Clavin. This is the Andrew Clavin Show. I'll be back again next week on Monday. See you then.
2: Angelus <laughs> dominus, siavit Maria, et concepit de spiritu
1: With plans that include unlimited miles, road trips have never been easier. Plus, you get exclusive access to CarShield's concierge service, as well as 24-7 roadside assistance and help with flat or damaged tires, lockouts, and rental car options. Call CarShield to speak with an expert here in the U.S. that can answer all your questions and get you a free quote in minutes. Don't wait another minute. Visit CarShield now before a breakdown happens and you get stuck with an expensive repair bill. Save 20% and get your free quote by going to carshield.com slash Shapiro now. That's carshield.com slash Shapiro to save 20% today.